Hello everyone, uh, welcome to this week's uh, CCW lunchtime seminar. I hope you're enjoying your delicious sandwiches. Um, I'm very pleased to introduce uh, Dr. John Eibner, uh, who is an American uh, human rights activist. Uh, he's the CEO of Christian Solidarity International, and he serves on the board of the American Anti-Slavery Group and is a member of the Institute of Historical Research at the University of London. Uh, he served as CS CSI's main representative to the UN at Geneva, and he's appeared before the uh, U.S. House of Representatives uh, Subcommittee on Africa and the Congressional House Rights Caucus and the U.N. Commission on Human Rights. Uh, in his role as an advocate, uh, Dr. Eibner has testified on behalf of Sudanese slaves and other victims of the National Islamic Front's Jihad, Islamic Holy War, against the country's uh, black African Christians and other minority groups. Uh, he has frequently briefed senior policymakers at the White House and the State Department. Um, and his talk today is on uh, social pluralism, religious cleansing, and hybrid warfare in contemporary Syria. But before we, we hear this fascinating talk, I should blurb uh, two special events. Uh, next week's lunchtime seminar, same time, uh, same place, uh, by Alanshil Akintola, which will be on tracing the ideology in an ideological struggle. Uh, what are the Niger Delta militant conflicts about? And then especially uh, the Violent Non-State Actors Seminar at uh, on Wednesday, uh, yeah, tomorrow, at 5.15 in All Souls in the War Room, uh, with Aldo Civico of Rutgers, talking about winning the fight against the Mafia, how civil society can meet the challenge. But without further ado, uh, Dr. Eibner. Thank you very much, John, for the uh, welcome and the hospitality, and, and great thanks to Ruth for getting me here and uh, in good shape and making everything uh, work so uh, smoothly. Um, as you will have gathered from the um, you know, introduction, I'm not a military uh, man, and I had to think long and hard before I accepted the invitation to speak in a seminar series that focuses on, um, on warfare. But my work always has been uh, connected with warfare. In my earliest days, it had to do with the Cold War. Uh, and then after the collapse of the, the Soviet Union, and when I went to uh, CSI, I was immediately involved in, in war zones, visiting uh, Nagorno-Karabakh at the time when it was blockaded in, the, uh, in 1991 was my first trip there. And then I spent many years focusing on uh, Sudan and the uh, uh, openly declared jihad that was waging there during the North-South uh, Civil War. And more recently, uh, I've been uh, <coughs> going to Iraq and in, in Syria, in Iraq since 2006, and Syria since 2013, uh, very regularly, with regard to you know, my human rights work. And you can approach human rights from different, very different uh, perspectives. And the work that I do with CSI focuses on endangered, especially uh, religious communities, those who's, uh, who are facing existential threats. That's why I went to see the Armenians in Karabakh and southern Sudanese and uh, now in uh, visiting, you know, and uh, documenting what's happening to the religious minorities in, um, in uh, Iraq and Syria. And of course there is a military dimension and I'm an observer uh, of that. And what I want to do today is to, as you'll see from my title, uh, connect dots between social pluralism, religious cleansing, and what I choose to, uh, to call hybrid warfare um, in Syria, to make these 
uh, connections because from my perspective I see what is happening to people, what is happening to communities and then try to understand how it's happening, you know, what is happening and how, uh, what needs to be done to bring it to an end. So I'd like to uh, stick with the prepared text as much as possible. I'll try to keep eye on, on time. Uh, but to gallop through this and hopefully you'll be um, interested enough to raise questions and we might have a lively debate afterwards and I look forward to leaving, uh, leaving the um, seminar wiser than I was when I arrived as a non-military person. I uh, really am very eager to uh, hear what uh, people have to say who approach this from a different perspective. But regarding social pluralism, for centuries uh, Syria has been a mosaic of different religious and ethnic communities. And reliable statistics are hard to come by, but on the eve of the Arab Spring uprisings, roughly half of the, uh, sorry, roughly 70% of Syrians were Sunnis. Christians and Alawites made up about 10 to 15% of the population each. Shiite Twelvers and Ishmaelis and Druze are among the smaller minority communities. And not only do these, or do these communities exist in, in Syria, they enjoy extensive religious freedom, provided, we must emphasize the provided, they do not stray into the realm of opposition politics. The social freedom extends also to secular people who do not wish to identify with the religious community, free thinkers, liberated women, homosexuals. Before the current war, Syria had a well-earned reputation providing more social pluralism than any other Sunni Arab majority country in the Middle East. Since the early 1970s, the guarantor of this pluralistic social system has been the Assad dictatorship. As Alawites, Hafaz, and now his uh, heir, Bashar al-Assad, have a strong interest in protecting the country's religious minorities. This protection was acknowledged by President Obama in 2014 when he met with religious leaders from the Middle East. For centuries until the end, until the end of the Ottoman Empire in 1918, all of these religious commu uh, minority communities had experienced persecution under Sharia-based Sunni rule. Since coming to power, the Assad regime has rested politically on the basis of the religious minorities, non-Islamist Sunnis, and various other secularized people. The main instruments for ensuring the stability of the system had been the Alawite-dominated network of intelli intelligence and security agencies. He relied on them to brutally crush in, 1918, in uh, 1982 a Muslim Brotherhood-led Sunni insurrection. The Sunni Islamist Brotherhood had posed the main threat to the Assad regime throughout the late 1970s and early 80s. But after it was crushed, there was no further direct challenge to the Assad socially pluralistic system until the Arab Spring uprisings. But today, social pluralism is no longer a feature of life in much of Syria today. It is being destroyed by the peculiar form of warfare that has been waged there over the past five years. There are important aspects of the current conflict in Syria that are unique to our times and point to the future development of warfare. But there are also those that harken back to the past. 
In 2014, the former director of the CIA and um, uh, Secretary of Defense, Leon Panetta, spoke of the conflict in Syria as a kind of 30 years war of the sort that devastated Central Europe in the 17th century, destroying one third of the population of Germany in the process. And Panetta was not far off the mark. There are some striking similarities. Among them are the interventions of the great powers, the multitude of armed forces, the use of proxies, including mercenaries, and the apocalyptic magnitude of the death and destruction. Not since the Mongol, uh, the Mongol invasion of the 13th century has warfare been more grisly for the Syrian people and ruinous for its economy and infrastructure. Reliable uh, statistics are very hard to come by, but uh, the figures that are in currency today and, and seem to be generally accepted, that about half a million people, just off half a million uh, Syrians have perished as a result of the conflict. Half of the population of 22 million have been displaced. Seven million of the homeless displaced have found refuge inside Syria, overwhelmingly in government-controlled areas, while four million have sought uh, refuge abroad. What I've seen on the ground confirms a UN report's conclusion that the war in Syria has produced the world's largest humanitarian crisis since World War II. Within, with the country's uh, economy and infrastructure in ruins, there's little hope for an early end to this catastrophe for the people of Syria. As in Europe's 30 years war of religion, the conflict has taken on a markedly sectarian character. And this became apparent already in the summer of uh, 2011. And it was a major uh, factor in CSI's decision that autumn to issue a genocide warning. Uh, we warned that the uh, religious minority communities are facing the possibility of, of genocide, but it fell on deaf, uh, deaf ears. However, last March, Secretary of State John Kerry issued a genocide determination. It expressed abhorrence at the religious cleansing committed by the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, which he declared was inherent in its ideology. Kerry identified the victimized communities by name, Yazidis, Christians, uh, Shiite Muslims, while also noting that others, in particular Sunni Muslims and Kurds, were also victims of various crimes against humanity. One of the most important factors that led to this uh, genocide determination was Washington's desire to legitimize its military operations in Syria and Iraq, operations that by their very nature also kill, maim, and displace civilians. Kerry wanted the world to know that these US-led military actions were, as he said, fully warranted by the Islamic State's genocidal deed. This falls into line, of course, with the doctrine of humanitarian um, intervention. Now, Kerry's statement is correct insofar as it goes, but he neglected to draw attention to the fact that the religiously cleansed areas of Syria extend far beyond the borders of the Islamic State. Other perpetrators of religious cleansing are also in play. Today, a huge swathe of territory running roughly 500 miles, and you can see it uh, from here. It runs so close to the uh, Mediterranean through northern uh, Syria down to the outskirts of uh, Baghdad has actually been religiously 
uh, cleansed. And now you would be hard pressed to find members, uh, any non-Sunnis living there, and those that are there are maybe old people that were too old to get away the ill, or there are always some few people who just say, we're not going and I'm going to die here, they'll have to kill me before I, I leave. But for all practical purposes, this huge area has been religiously cleansed of non-Sunnis. There are also large pockets of religiously cleansed territory in central and southern Syria, such as Dara province, the Duma suburb of um, Damascus. And some of the towns that uh, had been religious, that um, uh, uh, yeah, some of the major towns that have been religiously cleansed, and we're talking about urban areas, are Raqqa, Idlib, Palmyra, Al-Karatayn, Dara, the northern part of Derazor, and of course eastern Aleppo, which is in the news. Still other areas have been emptied of their religious minorities, but conditions were subsequently established that enabled uh, them to return to their homes if they wished to do so. Among them, the Kabur Valley uh, Assyrian villages, not far from, uh, from Raqqa, or the Armenian town of Kasab, um, near the Turkish border in the northeast, or the old city of Homs. Uh, Sadad and Molul, and I've visited all of these places apart from um, Kassab. Syria's religiously cleansed areas are coterminous with territory that is or had, has been conquered and controlled by the anti-government Sunni rebels. They range from the Islamic State to those called moderate by their American, European, <coughs> and Sunni Islamist regional backers. In particular, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Turkey. And for short, I will refer to this uh, nameless American-led constellation of states as the ANA. This may prop, prop up, uh, pop up from time to time in my talk. That is to say, the American-led network of alliances. And President Obama, of course, re referred to this reality in his 2014 West Point speech, noting that this uh, configuration of power is unrivaled in the history of nations and made a special point of saying that the uh, US military component has no peer. The assortment of Sunni rebel forces that control territory in Syria have varying relationships with the United States. Since the Islamic State's effort to capture Baghdad and Erbil following its unopposed conquest of Mosul in 2014, the United States and its ANA partners have been waging war against the Islamic State. The ANA's current relationship is ambiguous with Al-Qaeda's longtime affiliate, the Al-Nusra Front, recently rebranded as an ex-Al-Qaeda affiliate called Jabhat Fatah al-Sham, Conquest of Syria. Other so-called moderate groups, such as the Free Syrian Army, are shadowy and are subject to frequent reformations, name changes, and shifting alliances within the rebel movement. They are furthermore overtly or covertly financed, trained, and armed by members of the ANA. But there is something that virtually all of these so-called moderate armed groups have in common with Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. They're all driven by a strong sense of Sunni supremacism. This is an important common denominator between all powerful groups of the armed opposition. <clears throat> a declassified Department of Defense Intelligence Agency report dated August 2012 provides confirmation of this. It states, 
the Salafist, the Muslim, the Muslim Brotherhood, and Al-Qaeda Iraq, it states, are the major driving forces uh, for the insurgency in Syria. The report made no mention of moderate rebels. It made this omission for the ob obvious reason that non-Islamist Sunni forces are not a significant factor in the armed opposition. Even the, uh, the ANA-backed Syrian political opposition in exile is dominated by the Muslim Brotherhood. Now, one of the key conditions for genocide is the prevalence of a racially or religiously discriminatory ideology or worldview that upholds an, a utopian vision of a homogenous society as the foundation of political unity. Secretary Kerry, in his genocide determination, rightly noted that the Islamic State embraces and promotes such an ideology. But such an ideology is not unique to Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State. All three of the dominant Islamist tendencies that were referred to in the uh, Defense, Department, uh, Defense Department's report do so. One of the fundamental principles on which their common ideology is based is this Sunni supremacism. This principle encourages and provides legitimation for religious cleansing. And I ought to make clear here that Sunni suppression is not the only form of religious or ethnic chauvinism in the field, but it is in Syria the most powerful form in terms of numbers, history, tradition, and resources. Sunni supremacism is on full display in the writings of the, the late chief ideologue of the Muslim Brotherhood, Saeed, uh, Saeed Qateb. And there are no shortages of um, authorities to cite, but I think it's worth uh, highlighting Qateb because on the one hand his movement is regarded by the United States as a, as a legitimate political actor. Both the Bush and Obama administrations regarded Turkey under Islamic, um, other, um, under the um, Muslim Brotherhood-linked Justice and Development Party as a model for a democratic transformation of the Middle East. And on the other hand, uh, as uh, David Fondrail notes in the Smithsonian Magazine, a direct line of influence runs from Qatab to Osama bin Laden. Thus, Kateb inspires Islamist tendencies ranging from uh, a member of the NATO alliance to Al-Qaeda and its Islamic State spin-off. I will not go into details about, the, about Kateb's um, Sunni supremacism. I have many quotations, and if uh, it's felt desirable or necessary, we can return uh, we can return to his ideology. But the fact is that the main lines are shared throughout the Islamist world and the Is Islamist do ideology dominates the armed opposition to the Syrian government. Now it was this uh, Sunni supremacism that stoked up and drove the Muslim Brotherhood's erect, uh, insurrection against the Alawite Assad's uh, regime in the late 1970s and early 80s. And that was a precursor of the current rebellion, which in turn was preceded by a Sunni-led rebellion against the infidel French during the Mandate period. 
Then, as now, Sunni supremacism struck a chord with the strand of serious Sunni population. For many centuries, until the end of the First World War, Syria's rulers were Sunnis. According to various Sunni schools of Islamic law, uh, they had a God-given right to rule over non-Sunnis, all of which whom should be subject to legal and social disadvantages. I'm told, I don't speak Arabic, so I take it on the basis of um, my friends that do, I'm told that there is an old uh, Arabic adage that is in widespread currency today, and it goes, Sunnis are born to rule, while Shiites are born to lash themselves. So kind of a part of the popular culture um, of the region. When Assad assumed power in the early 1970s, it was perceived by uh, many Sunnis as an affront against God's law. Robert Kaplan has perceptively compared uh, Assad's ascent to power to an untouchable becoming Majaraha, uh, Majaraha in India, or a Jew becoming a Tsar in Russia. This outrage, Kaplan added, was an unprecedented development, shocking to the Sunni majority population, which had, a, which had monopolized power for so many centuries. The Sunni supremacism um, uh, is certainly not embraced by all Sunni uh, Syrians, but it is still very much alive and well, and the spirit, if not the letter, uh, of this ideology inspires all significant sections of the armed opposition. And I will jump over an, another uh, section here where I, where I um, have descriptions of the religious cleansing of a particular town, uh, Malula, which brings to life the reality of religious cleansing, uh, what uh, the Christian residents of that particular town uh, encountered. And again, if, uh, uh, if there's sufficient interest or need to, I can go back to that during Q&A. So what was the key factor that created condition for the current Sunni insurgency to result in extensive religious cleansing? I would maintain that it is externally driven hybrid warfare. Hafasad al-Assad was able to contain and crush the Muslim Brotherhood's insurrection in uh, 1982, mainly because it had no significant external support. His son Bashar has not been so fortunate. Within months of its outbreak, the Arab Spring Uprising was transformed into a Sunni sectarian insurrection. Mosques became the starting point for anti-government demonstrations that were soon vocalizing incentment to genocide in the form of the slogan, Alawites to the grave and Christians to Beirut. The Obama administration opted not to remain on the sidelines. Already the Bush administration had imposed economic sanctions against Syria in 2004 following the US invasion uh, of Iraq the previous year. The declared reason for the Bush sanctions was Syrian support for Hamas and Hezbollah and for allowing Syrian territory to be used by Sunni insurgents for launching attacks against <coughs> US-occupied Iraq. In 2009, the Obama administration renewed these sanctions. Syrian, Syria had long been a thorn in Washington's flesh, and when the uprisings in the spring of 2011 shook the regimes of the region to their foundations, 
the Obama administration believed the time was ripe for revolutionary change. In his address to the American nation on May 12, 2011, he, had, he declared, it will be the policy of the United States to promote reform across the region and to support transitions to democracy. Regarding Syria, the president condemned the violent means of repression used by the Syrian authorities against demonstrators and he emphasized the close relationship between Damascus and Iran. So there were in part humanitarian reasons for intervention and then there were geopolitical uh, reasons, the relationship between Damascus and Iran. He then instructed President Assad, uh, Assad to lead a transition to democracy or to step out of the way. And should he uh, disobey the warning, he said, the regime will continue to be challenged from within and will continue to be isolated abroad. Now Bashar al-Assad did not obey and as a result Secretary of State Hillary Clinton declared in June, July that the Syrian president had lost legitimacy. Uh, the next month President Obama announced that for the sake of the Syrian people the time has come for Assad to step aside. Now is the time for action. Obama articulated a clear and simple policy objective. It was regime change. In doing so, he cited grave human rights abuses as factors to, to legitimize his own policy. But the American goal was presented somewhat differently, and I believe more credibly, one year later by a previous cited Department of, uh, Department of Defense intelligent analyst. He or she noted in a secret memorandum that the foreign backers of the armed rebellion aimed at this, the establishment of a declared or undeclared Salafist principality in eastern Syria. The, the defined function of the envisaged Islamist Sunnistan was to isolate the Syrian regime, which is considered the strategic depth of the Shia expansion. In other words, its, its purpose was to break the Shiite crescent. The analyst also dished the notion of regime change, saying that the regime will survive and have control over Syrian territory. If we are left to the mercy of the Freedom of Information Act, we are not likely to know with any degree of certainty exactly what the Obama administration's endgame for Syria was at the time. But what we do know is that the Assad regime, as predicted by the analyst, still controls much territory in, in Syria, and Islamist principalities have indeed been established in eastern Syria, the principal one being the Islamic State. The severance of the uh, Shiite crescent by the establishment of a de facto or de jure, uh, de jure Sunni polity strikes me as a more credible geopolitical goal than simply the removal of President Assad from power. It is clear that the achievement of Washington's strategic goal in Syria was not uh, to be left exclusively to the, um, to the Syrian people. President Obama had already stated in May that the United States would continue to promote democratic transition. And, uh, and also to face considerable you know, pressure from outside the country. The question for the Obama administration was how to achieve its policy goal. His preliminary instinct, according to Jeffrey Goldberg, was to lean back on 
what had been by that time known to most White House insiders as um, a cryptic way for describing the Obama military doctrine. And it was, don't do stupid shit. <laughs> White House staff understood this tongue-in-cheek presidential decree to mean, don't make the same fatal political mistake that Bush made when he committed thousands of American boots on the ground for an invasion and occupation of Iraq. Now, Obama was neither a pacifist nor an isolationist. He was and is a progressive internationalist who is ideologically convinced that the United States should pursue vigorously the goal of global liberal hegemony in the tradition of all post-Cold War U.S. presidents. This means the projection of American power to fill vacuums wherever and however they may arise. President Obama had no doubt about the United States' ability to do this in the case of Syria. He believed that the smart wars for the development of this liberal global hegemony would be those fought somewhat along the lines projected by Lieutenant Colonel Frank Hoffman in his influential study, Conflict in the 21st Century, The Rise of Hybrid Warfare. I'm sure that well known to everybody here. Now the US intervention in Syria appears at least to me to correspond uh, to a great extent to Hoffman's description of what hybrid warfare actually is and how it plays out. But there are many debates surrounding the concept hybrid warfare and there is no universally agreed definition of what it is. Some deny that it constitutes a new distinct form of warfare. In an article in NATO Review, uh, one author asks, does it even exist? And recommends that NATO policymakers should forget everything hybrid and focus on the specificity and the interconnectedness of the threats they face. This author might be right, but the fact is his advice is largely ignored. The term hybrid warfare continues to be used by the highest uh, uh, officials of the Western Alliance, mainly to brand a threat emanating from uh, Russia and also, to some extent, the Islamic State. Now, NATO does have a, a very short uh, official definition, which is so short and loose that it's really not particularly helpful. But the outgoing uh, Supreme Allied Commander uh, of Europe, General Breedlove, has put a little bit of meat on that very bare bone. He portrays the hy hybrid warfare as allegedly undertaken by Russia and the Ukraine and the IS in the Middle East as a continuum of threat, including unconventional and conventional methods. These methods exploit uh, non-attributable means like cyber, information warfare, surprise, deception, extensive use of proxy and special forces. On the unconventional side, there is the use of political sabotage, economic pressure, intelligence operations, and special operations, and the posturing of conventional forces for a wide range of options. I think that's a fairly helpful uh, definition used by NATO leadership. Since this concept has, does have some definition and creeps into the rhetoric of NATO leaders, 
I take the liberty of using it to brand the United States' efforts to achieve its strategic objectives in Syria. Let's take a, uh, a brief look at the Obama administration's playbook for creating an Islamist Sunni stand in eastern Syria. As President Obama was ramping up pressure against the Assad regime during the spring of two, and summer of 2011, economic sanctions were the principal overt action on public display. He announced the uh, imposition of what he called unprecedented sanctions to deepen the financial isolation of the Assad regime and further disrupt its ability to finance a campaign of violence against the Syrian people. These actions are indeed unprecedented and appear to be wreaking enormous death and destruction. While bombs, bullets, and beheadings capture media headlines, the sanctions quietly kill and gravely damage whatever economic activity and infrastructure survives uh, the, uh, the, the hot war. We can see from hindsight that economic sanctions in Iraq between the Gulf War and the overthrow of Saddam Hussein so weakened the state that it became largely dysfunctional. And we can expe uh, expect similar results in Syria should these draconian sanctions remain in place. It should be noted here that there is enormous enthusiasm in Washington, or at least there was up until Election Day, about the use of sanctions as a coercive instrument for the advancement of American interests abroad. Economic sanctions are a weapon of war that can be employed at low cost in terms of both blood and treasure, yet they can have powerfully destructive impacts. As the globalized banking system develops with the U.S. dollar dominating international financial transactions, the might and reach of this instrument spreads globally. In a recent report entitled, The New Tools of Economic Warfare, Effects and Effectiveness of Contemporary U.S. Financial Sanctions, a team at the Center for a, UN for a new UN security under the leadership of Michel Flournoy, a former Deputy Secretary uh, of Defense under Obama, and she was widely touted to be Hillary Clinton's uh, Secretary of Defense. Now this report highlighted the significance of financial sanctions for the, Amer for the United States global aspirations when they concluded Sanctions may become one of the most important instruments of economic competition or hybrid warfare in the future, with undeniable staying power because of their utility in projecting power to achieve, desire, to achieve desirable policy outcomes. Syria provides a wonderful laboratory for examining the effectiveness of this tool of economic warfare. Information warfare is another important aspect of Washington's Syria strategy. The U.S. government using its full range of covert and overt instruments of what used to be called psychological warfare during the Eisenhower and Kennedy eras has largely succeeded in creating a dominant and powerful media narrative designed to delegitimize the Syrian government. Linked, uh, leaked Clinton emails show that Google's Jared Cohen, who seems to embody uh, what we might today call the digital military complex has been involved in this process. One of the most advanced aspects of this program is the establishment and funding of an extensive media network in rebel-held territories, 
It is made up mainly of so-called citizen reporters, NGOs, and activists purporting to, uh, to represent civil society. They feed outlets like the opposition-related Syrian Observatory on Human Rights with information and broadcast footage uh, that is then forwarded to the media. Much of the output is human rights related, but religious cleansing doesn't feature in it. These two aspects of the um, destabilization strategy impact religious cleansing insofar as they render the Syrian state incapable of effectively protecting its citizens, including the non-Sunni minorities. But the lethal and non-lethal aid to the armed opposition has a, has a very direct impact. The details of material support may never be known, but the main players in the American-led network of alliances acknowledge that they provide both kinds of support. I just uh, had an email message today from a colleague who said that a, a uh, new foreign office report uh, says that the UK has devoted 65 million pounds of non-humanitarian aid and uh, the declared purpose is to, or the, yeah, the purpose of this aid is to bolster moderate governments and improve the, lines, the lives of ordinary citizens. So this is non-humanitarian aid that is being used to bolster moderate governance and improve the lives of ordinary citizens. I must say I don't know many, I don't encounter many Syrians um, when I travel there who would buy such Orwellian, um, Orwellian proclamations. Um, Now, Washington's model for Syria appears to be the Reagan administration's policy for supporting Mujahideen jihadists, including Afghan uh, Arabs, out of which Al-Qaeda emerged against the infidel Soviet Union. Just what is delivered and by whom and to whom is shrouded in mystery, but every now and again, the public is able to catch a, a glimpse of the aid for Syrian rep, uh, rebels. In the investigations into the attack against the U.S. consulate in Benghazi revealed that the CIA was sending ex-Gaddafi weapons, including missiles, to unidentified anti-government rebels in Syria via Turkey. The Syrian operations <coughs> of the Benghazi CIA center were meant to be, to, to be kept secret. But the agency has acknowledged that it, together with partners, provide support for Syrian rebels out of facilities both in Turkey and in Jordan. The White House was embarrassed when it emerged that all of the equipment that, all of the equipment that reached Syria out of a $500 million rebel training uh, and support program ended up in the hands of the al-Nusra Front. A similar scandal was revealed when the New York Times reported that Syria-bound weapons that were shipped into Jordan by the CIA and Saudi Arabia had systematically been stolen by Jordanian intelligence operatives and sold to arms merchants on the black market. Perhaps the greatest embarrassment for the Obama administration came when um, Vice President Joe Biden, in off-the-cuff remarks at, at um, Harvard, stated that Washington's Sunni regional partners, in particular the Turks, the Saudis, and the Emiratis, 
had poured hundreds of millions of dollars and tons of weapons uh, into al-Nusra, al-Qaeda, and the extremist elements of jihad coming from other parts of the world. The Vice President furthermore admitted that the United States was not able to provide support for, uh, uh, to support weapons to moderate forces because there, in his words, is no moderate middle existing in Syria. Maybe we can come back to this in Q&A and also to the reference that I made about Afghanistan, Reagan's Afghan policy uh, being a model because we see a theme in American uh, policy and it goes back to the time of the British and their dealings with Ibn Saud uh, in Arabia that uh, jihad can be uh, a useful instrument uh, of projecting power and promoting your in, uh, interests and it appears that this is in play in Syria uh, today. The U.S. armed forces have in, intervened more directly on the ground in Syria since Washington and his partners opted to wage war against the Islamic State in 2014. American uh, planes are regularly bombing uh, positions in Syria. And, uh, but it's not only from, from the air. Uh, the U.S. has established its own uh, 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 airport facility uh, in Hasaka province. American and other um, uh, ANA special forces are on the ground training opposition forces. Washington acknowledges that there are uh, at least 300 American special forces in the country, but there could be and probably are many more who are involved in covert actions that cannot be identified. Half a dozen or so of these special forces made headlines last September when they were roughly expelled by their Free Syrian Army hosts while being threatened with slaughter. A YouTube video shows Free Syrian Army soldiers shouting, they are crusaders and infidels, down with America. Get out, you pigs. They're coming to Syria to occupy it. These are the same kinds of insults that are routinely hurled at religious minorities by Sunni supremacist rebels in Syria. Now my conclusion. Writing at the beginning of this year in Military Review, Charles Bartels, an analyst at Fort Leavenworth, summed up the Russian military's perception of how Washington directly, or through its extensive network of alliances and intelligence relationships, puts hybrid warfare into play. Much of what Bartels has to say was based on Anthony Kordesman's detailed eyewitness account of the Russian Ministry of Defense's 2014 Moscow Conference on International Security. Bartels wrote, Instead of an overt military invasion, the first volleys of a U.S. attack come from the installment of a political opposition through state propaganda, CNN, the BBC. The internet and social media and non-governmental organizations. After successfully instilling uh, political dissent, separatism, and or social strife, the legitimate government has increasing difficulty maintaining order. As the security situation deteriorates, separatist movements can be stoked and strengthened. Um, and underhand um, uh, special operations with private uh, military forces can be introduced to battle the government and cause further havoc. Once the legitimate government is forced to use increasingly aggressive methods to maintain order, 
the United States gains a pretext for the imposition of economic and political sanctions, and sometimes even military sanctions, such as no-fly zones, to tie the hands of the besieged governments and promote further dissent. The character of the war waged against Syria by the United States and its allies corresponds to a large degree to what the Russian military views as the standard pattern of contemporary American hybrid warfare. Whether or not we choose to call the kind of warfare that Washington and its allies practice in, in Syria hybrid warfare, there is little doubt that these interventions have caused uh, material, you know, extensive damage uh, you know, to out, throughout the country. They've contributed to uh, religious cleansing and so all the, the, the various aspects of this man-made catastrophe. The new president-elect of the United States has made sounds suggesting that he might not continue to prosecute his predecessor's war in Syria. We will see. Anything can happen. But should this come to pass, the dynamic of religious cleansing will be considerably diminished and Syria's remarkable social pluralism will have at least a chance of survival. Thank you very much for your attention.